century to century, from one side of the globe to the other, God's word has been drawing people to Jesus Christ. When Adoniram Judson shared the Sermon on the Mount in the barren fields of Burma, after seven years of preaching this same gospel, this same Bible, Maung Now became the first convert under Judson's ministry. When Judson was asked what he did differently, he said he remained faithful, continued to preach the word of God. Augustine heard the voice of a child saying, pick it up and read it. Pick it up, read it. He ran back to his home and he opened up his Bible and he came to Romans 13, 13, which would condemn his godless lifestyle that he was living. And God, through Romans 13, 13, would open his eyes, call him to himself. Jonathan Edwards tells of the first instance of inward sweet delight in God. And he said it came about when he read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Edwards would say, never any word seemed to me as these words did. The word of God running its course as it goes forth. Martin Luther had the light break through his state of misery as a monk by reading Romans chapter 1 verse 17, that the righteousness of God was revealed from faith to faith. And each of these individuals would go on to model a deep love for and devotion to the word of God. For example, Martin Luther in one calendar year preached 170 sermons outside of his full-time job of lecturing through the Bible. During that year, Luther would cover all but 13 books of the Bible in his lectures. His job didn't command him to cover such ground, but Luther in his words would say that the Bible is the greatest, most necessary, and important thing in Christendom. I mean, it's easy, I think, for you and I to listen to Luther and to be amazed. And yet, I pray that we wouldn't be amazed at his zeal for the Bible. Shouldn't that be ordinary? Shouldn't that just mark every professing Christian? Maybe amazed at Luther's pace and his schedule but not his love for the word. Oh, that that would mark all of us. And yet how many of us profess the preciousness of God's word and yet neglect to prize it with our day, with our time. Peter was well aware of the threat to these churches that he was writing to as these false teachers were coming in, seeking to undermine and to contradict the word that had gone forth that they had believed in, that message that had been handed down generation to generation from the apostles themselves. And it's really this consuming thought that, that guides Peter's whole second letter. How is it that he can encourage these Christians, these churches, from falling away? from the truth and succumbing, giving in to false teaching. And it's informed everything that Peter has written up until this point. The entire first chapter is centered on holiness, reminding the listener of what it is that God has done in Christ in providing salvation, but also in providing sanctification, making them more and more holy in their daily lives. And then this gracious gift from God compels followers of Jesus not to be passive, but to diligently supply their faith with effort. Why? So verse 11, so that they would enter into the rich reception of God's eternal kingdom. And this isn't, Peter's not saying, so if you do all of these works, you will earn a way into glory. He's saying you show that you have been redeemed by the life that you live. This gracious gift from God that compels followers of Jesus to, to not only give themselves 
but even to think about how they spend the rest of their lives. Peter would say, I will spend the rest of my life. And Peter knows he's about to die soon. Peter says, I will spend the rest of my life reminding you of these truths. Peter says, I never move on from the truth. And so he would encourage these churches in the midst of these false teachers to not move on from the truth. And beginning in verse 16 of our passage this morning, what we will find is Peter begins to interact not so much with those that he's writing to. He's beginning to interact with the false teaching that was rampant in this day. And really, it centers around something that we see in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Later on in this letter, Peter writes, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, verse 4, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so essentially, at the center of what these false teachers were proposing was that there really is no such thing as a second coming. And if there's no such thing as a second coming, then there's no such thing as giving an account in judgment. And if there's no such thing as a second coming that will lead to a judgment, then it doesn't matter how we live. And what we'll see in chapter 2 is exactly how immoral these false teachers were living. And so they have come into the church and they're saying, hey, you've heard Peter, you've heard Paul, you've heard them speak of this second coming. How long are we going to wait? There's not a second coming. And because there's not a second coming, let's, let's ease up on the standards, on the restrictions. Let's pursue freedom. And so how is it that Peter will fight to ensure that these Christians do not reject his teachings? How is it that he will fight to call them specifically to believe in the second coming of Jesus the Christ. Well, much like a lawyer would do in a court case today, Peter presents the two most reliable evidences in order to persuade them to reject false teaching and to believe the truth. And those two evidences will serve as our sermon points this morning. Two evidence that Peter presents to encourage them to reject false truth, false teaching, and to believe in the second coming of Jesus. Number one, the power of eyewitness account. The power of eyewitness account. We see this in verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow, 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 wow. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter doesn't begin this section by taking a jab at these false teachers by calling what it was that they was teaching cleverly devised tales or myths or fables. No, in fact, he's responding to the accusation of the false teachers who said, oh yeah, what Peter has shed, uh, shared with you? Cleverly devised tale. This is your crutch. And so Peter begins this section by saying, no, 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 we have not given you cleverly devised tales. They claim that the apostles' teaching wasn't true factually. And so the false teachers would come in and, and it's not that they would say nothing in the Bible that you've heard is true, but they would say something like this, uh, Jonah, yeah, the story of Jonah is not true, but God can indeed rescue you. Story of Adam and Eve, Story of Adam and Eve is not true, but everyone sins and rebels against God. The resurrection, resurrection is not true, but God can bring an Easter of sorts in our hearts. And Peter opposes this line of thinking. Aristotle said eyewitnesses were used to determine whether a thing has happened or not. Eyewitnesses are called in to determine whether something has happened or not. And this matters greatly in the Christian faith. Friends, we trust our eyes a thousand times each day. 
perhaps even more. And what does Peter say that they were eyewitnesses to? Peter says, no, no, no. These aren't tales that we're making up. We were eyewitnesses to this. What were they eyewitnesses to? Peter says, to his majesty, to the majesty of Christ. Peter remembered. He remembered when Jesus told them in Mark chapter 13 that the Son of Man would come again in, great, uh, with, in clouds with great power and glory. And that word coming there in verse 16, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word coming occurs 18 times in the New Testament. And every one of those times refers to Jesus' second coming, his return not his first. And so what Peter is doing by saying we were eyewitness accounts is Peter is putting this message in the category of historical, verifiable fact. This is not inner impression. This is not myth. This is not allegorical stories. Christians see things entirely different because of the eyewitness account of many. From the very beginning, Christianity was uh, irrevocably connected, tied to the events of history. When Luke makes known, uh, when he identifies himself in his gospel and in the, the book of Acts, what we find is Luke wants readers to know that he has done research. John wants his readers to know in his gospel that the miracles really did happen because many people saw it. As one commentator said, in contrast to almost every other religion of of the time, Christianity has a stubbornly historical basis. Christianity is stubbornly historical. Christianity stands or falls on history. And yet we live in a day much like the day of 2 Peter where there are some who would say we are spiritual but not religious, which means I want truth, but I don't want it necessarily based in historical reality. J. Gresham Machen said this, if the Christian religion is founded on historical facts, then there is something in the Christian message that can never change. Facts stay put. If a thing really has happened, then nothing can change the fact that it has happened. Friends, no matter how much it's ridiculed and laughed at, that doesn't change the historical reality of the Christian faith. This is why all throughout this letter, Peter stresses knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge of these historically verifiable events. Genuine Christian faith does not flourish in ignorance or in speculation. It flourishes in knowledge. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know where you stand with the Lord. I wonder what you think of the truth claims of the Christian faith. I wonder what you do with the reality that the Bible teaches that the Lord will indeed return to judge the living and the dead. You may have a hard time this morning believing in the returning judgment of Jesus, but if we were to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's first correspondence, this is what we would read in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Friends, if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't know where you stand with Jesus, I want to thank you for being here, and I want you to know that the reality of a return of Christ to judge the living and the dead, that is a a true reality that will happen. And you may be saying, that just seems to me hard to believe. The most unbelievable truth about this is not that Christ will return to judge, but that Christ has first come to save. And that's what 1 Peter 3, that's been the underlying support in this whole letter of 2 Peter. The Bible reveals to us that God is a faithful God and that God is a covenant-keeping God. 
That means that God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to who he is. God is holy, altogether separate and against everything that is not holy. So for God to be faithful to his word and faithful to his character, then God must oppose everything that is, that is not holy. And you say, yes and amen, I'm on board for that. Well, guess what? You and I are not faithful and we are not holy. And that means that because of God's holiness, he must oppose even us. And we say, well, if God is faithful to his word and faithful to his character, how then also can he be faithful to his people? It would seem that by necessity, if all people are sinners, all people are separated from God, all people are, are worthy of his punishment for sin that they commit, then how in the world is there even a people? And this is the beauty of the Christian faith. The beauty of the Christian faith holds out God being faithful to his word and also faithful to his people. How in the world did he do it? We sin and holiness demands that sin be punished, but the Bible made clear from the beginning that while all sin separates us from God and that God unleashes his wrath and his anger on all sin, in great mercy and grace, he sent his son, Jesus the Christ, to come and to die. He lived a life that was perfect, earning, rewarding himself the favor of God. He died a death that was reserved for sinners who are guilty of not living holy lives. And you say, wait a minute, that's not what he deserved, that's what I deserve. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith is that for all who would turn from their sin, for all who would place their trust in Christ alone, they can be forgiven. And the righteousness that Christ earned can be yours. And the sin that you deserved, exhausted on him. Friends, it may be astonishing to you that Jesus would return. That he would return to judge the living and the dead. But I pray that you would be more astonished that he would come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the good news of the Christian faith is that we don't celebrate a dead savior. But on the third day, he rose triumphantly from the grave. Reminding that not just people who trust in Jesus have, have uh, a hope. We do have a hope. But people who trust in Jesus will also be raised to new life just like he was. And will get an eternity with him forever. If you are here and you're not a Christian... I would just plead with you, talk to someone about what it looks like to turn from your sin and to trust in the work of Jesus long before you'll ever, ever believe and come to understand why he's coming to judge the living and the dead. You have to first receive that he has come to save and to seek that which is lost. And that's you. And that was me. And by his grace we can rest and know his love. In verses 17 and 18, Peter makes known the particular historical event that has given, given him so much confidence. Right? Peter comes out and he says, no, no, these are not uh, cleverly devised tales that we're, that we're uh, encouraging and sharing with you. In fact, we have seen his majesty and verses 17 and 18 refers to the event that Peter is leaning on. What was that event? How in the world would Peter have so much confidence that Christ is going to return in power and in glory? And what we read in 17 and 18 is that Peter is looking back and he's remembering, he's remembering the eyewitness account, the experience that he had with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 records this event. Six days later, it, it, it's interesting, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the transfiguration, this account is uh, made clear. And in each of those, 
there is a reference to the number of days that, that starts this account of the transfiguration. We'll see why that's important. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And so this account of the transfiguration that's happening Peter says, because, I, what, because of what I saw on that day, I have confidence that there will indeed be a return of Christ. Because on that mountain, what was revealed? What was revealed to these three? Power and glory. The eternal radiant glory of Jesus Christ was revealed Think about it. Jesus had veiled his glory behind the weakness of human flesh. They had not yet seen it. And upon the mountain, Peter and James and John are given a glimpse. They're given a glimpse. They're able to behold the brilliant, the terrifying brilliance and radiance of light and glory. His dazzling glory and his majesty were displayed in visible form in this blinding display of pure light. And not only did they behold it with their eyes, they also beheld it with their ears. It wasn't just what they saw. They weren't just eyewitnesses. They were also ear witnesses. They heard God the Father say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This eyewitness experience confirmed to Peter that the second coming of Jesus was certain. And maybe, maybe like I was all week, maybe you're sitting here saying, okay, Justin, Peter up on the mountain, transfiguration, they see this glory. How in the world is that supposed to equal Jesus is going to return? Well, if you were to look at each of those accounts, and so just take Matthew chapter 17, for example, six days later, six days later than what? Well, if we read back at the end of Matthew chapter 16, this is what we find. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If you were to read Luke chapter 7, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 9, some eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John up some eight days after what sayings? Well, let's look up Luke chapter 9, verse 27, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's interesting is that in each of the account of the transfigurations, what you have is the author saying, this only makes sense in light of what was said some six days earlier. A few days earlier, remember what he's saying. And so we are supposed to understand the transfiguration in light of what Jesus had just been teaching about. What had Jesus just been teaching about? That the Son of Man would indeed return in power and in glory. That's what he shared with the disciples. And then what do we have? We have a visible expression of that. And Peter is saying, yes. God granted a glimpse to Peter of what this would look like. Peter says, I know what power and glory he's going to return in. Do you know why? Because I saw it on the mountain. I saw his majesty. It left me undone. Why should these Christians not give in to these false teachers claiming that Peter's message was a cleverly devised tale? Peter says, because I was an eyewitness. 
And I was an ear witness to the power and to the glory of Jesus at his transfiguration. But that's not the only evidence Peter gives. Leads us to our second evidence for why they should believe that the second coming will occur and why they should reject the false teaching of these uh, false teachers. Number two, the greater power of the written word of God. The greater power of the written word of God. So we have the power of eyewitness account. And then we have the greater power of the written word of God. Again, just think of a lawyer today presenting two of the most uh, slam dunk proofs for his case. We have eyewitnesses. We have documents that were written. Peter goes on in this section. This is what he says. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter goes on to say that this message of the second coming was foretold by the prophets. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Wait a minute. So is Peter sort of backtracking and saying, hey, everything I just said about the eyewitness account, it doesn't really matter. No, no, no. I don't understand Peter to be doing that. I don't think Peter is undermining his previous point. I believe Peter would be saying, if you read the Old Testament scriptures, you will see them repeatedly speaking of a day of the Lord where he will come in glory He will judge the earth, he will establish his kingdom, and he will make all things new. And Peter says, I am locating my experience, what I saw and what I heard, into the words of the Old Testament scriptures, because this testimony is more sure. This testimony is more certain. When, when, when we read prophetic word there in verse 19, we shouldn't only be thinking of the prophets, though, yes, think of the prophets' words, but you should be thinking of all of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. Jesus on his road, on the road to Emmaus, when he surprises and appears to his disciples, he lets them know that the writings, the prophets, and the law were all pointing to him. He's the fulfillment of them all. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that one part of Scripture is more true than another part. It's all breathed out by God, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Peter bolsters his argument at this point. He says, You may question, right? You may even be questioning what we saw and what we heard. But there's an even more convincing proof that he is going to return again. What is that proof? The scripture says it. God's word has spoken. We have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure. You know what that implies? That implies that the Bible is more reliable than your senses. Friends, the Bible is more reliable than your senses. You don't need special words of knowledge from the Lord to hear from the Lord. The scriptures say it. We believe it. That settles it. That mantra can be ridiculed in our day. And yet we will find ourselves succumbing to false teaching if we don't stake our claim here. Scripture says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word, the Old Testament scriptures made more sure. And just to be clear, you say, well, okay, what about the New Testament scriptures? Well, if you were just to flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3, you get to verse 16, and what we'll find is that Peter even locates the words of Paul as the scriptures. 
And so it would be good for us then just to understand that when we read prophetic word, we should be thinking Bible that we hold in hand, 66 books, Old and New Testaments. This is the more sure word. And so what, what does Peter encourage then? So we have this, more, this prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to, and in our little section this morning, verses 16 through 21, the first command is here. Pay attention. Pay attention to this more sure word. Pay attention. Because it's more sure, pay attention. Give heed, trust, believe, order your lives around this scripture. One pastor noted to capture the urgency of this admonition, Peter uses a picture. And this is the picture that he uses here in verse 19. It's night. The world is covered in darkness of sin, deceit, fear, and greed. All of us in this age of darkness are in danger of stumbling over some falsehood. And our only hope to survive the night is to have a lamp that goes before us. And Peter says that this prophetic word, these scriptures, the promises of Christ coming, that's the lamp. That's the lamp. And this wouldn't have been novel to anyone hearing this. Right, the psalmist, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And so Peter encourages these in his original audience and by extension us this morning, if we don't want to stumble around, be swept away by one false teaching after another, then we must adhere to the light of the lamp that is the word of God. Keep our eyes on the word. Don't fall asleep. Don't turn away for some other song that sings in the night. The hope of Christ's coming, the hope of his return is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path in a very dark world. And he says, how long do you pay attention? You pay attention. Look at verse 19. You pay attention until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The dawning of the day, biblical imagery of what happens on the day that he returns. It's a new day. Revelation 22, verse 16. The morning star, this one who would come from the lineage of Jacob, Numbers 24, 17. A star would come. Glory within, the dawn breaking, or glory without, the dawn breaking, glory within, the morning star arising. And as we are experiencing that, what does it do? It fills our hearts with joy. The word of God will serve as a lamp until Christ returns. And then when he returns, guess what? No lamp is needed for his glory and the brilliance. What Peter saw at the mountain transfiguration becomes light for all in the kingdom of God. Then in verse 20 and 21, Peter gives us some of the most important words in the Bible about the Bible. It's helpful for us to understand this. He gives us the second command at this point, verse 20. He says, know this. So of this more sure, of this more certain prophetic word, we are to pay attention, give heed, order our lives around it, not just be aware of it, but submit to it. And then know this, know this, believe this, trust this. And this is where Peter bolsters his argument that the scriptures are more sure than any subjective experience. Because Peter says that no prophecy comes from one's own interpretation. Peter says, listen, I may have heard from the mountain, but we all hear from the scriptures. We all hear from the scriptures. The way that we seek to hear from God is not primarily through experience, but through Bible. We all have subjective experiences, and yet in 
kind of connecting and rooting all of those things, driving all of these things back home to a place of true, sound faith is this objective word. And so I was just thinking, what kind of analogy could I give that would drive this point home? It would just sort of show that there's something about the word that even trumps this subjective experiences that we have. And, and I didn't come up with one, but Jesus came up with one. In Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, the rich man and the poor man named Lazarus. You remember the story? Lazarus has nothing in this world and he literally is just clawing to get the scraps from the table of Lazarus. Or uh, from the rich man. It's presumed that the rich man doesn't give him any of the scraps. The rich man then dies and goes to Hades while the poor man is at Abraham's side. The rich man looks up and he asks, could Lazarus just come and comfort me with a drop of water? And the word that's received is that eternity is fixed. There's no kind of coming out and going and helping and eternity is fixed. What you do in this life is what determines where and how you spend eternity. In verse 27 The rich man says, well, could you just send someone to my family so they don't end up here? Verse 29, the response comes back. They have the written word. Let them hear. They have the scriptures. The rich man saying, can you just please send someone who would give a testimony? The testimony has been given they have a more sure word. They have the written word. Verse 30, the rich man doesn't give up. He says, well, if someone would go to them from the dead, then they will repent. I think many of us think something similar. If our loved ones, if our neighbors would just hear from God in some audible way, then they would believe. The Bible says if your neighbor and your loved one doesn't hear doesn't believe in light of the Bible, they would no more believe with a mere testimony. When men who wrote the scriptures received the revelation from God, they didn't receive revelation and sort of think about it and twist it and make it fit what they thought and then they wrote, no. And and I think the same is true for those of us who read the scriptures. Scriptures do not mean what we want them to mean because scripture wasn't given so that it would carry out our ideas. Scripture was given so it would make clear what God's ideas are. John Piper shares this illustration that I think is helpful. He says, suppose that you are a platoon leader and had been trapped with your platoon behind enemy lines. And your commanding officer smuggles a coded message to you to inform how to get out. What do you do with that message? Do you pass it around the platoon and collect everyone's impressions and then flip a coin to see which impression you go with? No. You sit down and you labor to break the code. Why? Because your impressions are not what the platoon needs. The mind of your commander makes all the difference. The interpretation of that message has one aim. What did the commander intend to communicate? And to that end, you submit yourself. You submit yourself to the severe discipline of memory and analysis and construction until you have assurance that it's his meaning and not your own that has been found. And then you take your life and you stake everything on it. Friends, how do we have confidence in this word? How do we have confidence in this word? Because the understanding of those who received the word didn't come from their own decoding. The biblical writers were not making up their own writings, but instead, as verse 21 tells us, they were men moved by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. Some people think that Christians deny the fact that men wrote the Bible. Second Peter makes clear, no, 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 men did write the Bible. 
men who had varying personalities, they wrote the Bible. And some believe that those who wrote the Bible were simply mechanically writing down what God was whispering in their ear. Friends, Muslims believe that. They believe that Allah whispered to that God whispered uh, Allah whispered to Muhammad as he wrote down Allah's words. Christians don't believe this. The Lord by his spirit chose men gave them personalities, gave them different vocabularies. And while they were writing, the Spirit was intending, he was superintending everything that they wrote. We believe in what we would call concurrence, that God superintends while at the same time uses the speech and the patterns and the knowledge and the personalities of men as they were speaking or as they were writing. So men speak and God speaks. Because men speak as they are spoken to from God. It was their words. But it was carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that, that word carried, uh, that verb there, carried along. Kind of verse 21, moved by the Holy Spirit. It's the same word that was used up in verses 17 Verses 17 and 18, the word made. Such an utterance of this was made, was carried on by God himself. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, carried by God. And in the same way, as men are writing, they are carried by God in writing. The words heard on the mountain are the same words heard through the prophets. God produced them all. And that's why the prophetic writing, the prophetic word is so sure. And I believe this more sure word helps us just drive three convictions into our confession that will help us stay true and stay faithful to the word, but it will also help our church from being swept away by false teaching. And I'm helped at this point by Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word. Just a reminder of why the Bible can be trusted, the authority, the sufficiency of the scriptures. And so just three convictions that I believe Peter encourages us to embrace and hold on to. One, scripture is the word of God. Scripture is the word of God. There came a point in history where people began to question everything that they once believed. And... Uh, a, gener- uh, a movement began, uh, most notably of this movement, guys like Karl Barth, developed this line of thinking that has eroded the church's confidence in the word. Because what Bart, Bart would say is he was just questioning everything. Can we believe this? Can we believe that? He said that the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible contains the word of God. He also said that the Bible becomes for us the word of God. Friends, it's very subtle, but I hope you can see and just hear the difference. Bart was saying the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible becomes to us the word of God as we begin to seek it. So the, the authority that lies within the Bible is not in the text. It's not in the Bible. It's in our experience and how we approach it. And again, it's ever so subtle. But what we believe is that here, now, in these writings, on these pages, the inspired record of what men spoke and wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration is a past event. It's not a future event. You don't have to find inspiration in order to engage and interact and encounter the living God. No, this word was inspired. We're not waiting on this book to come alive. We're not waiting on some inspirational act to make this book come alive. This book is alive and living. And this matters because the authority resides in the book. The authority resides in the text, in the words, in the sentences, in the paragraphs. It's not our experience of them. 
People don't like the idea of truth being written down. They don't like that words or, or propositions uh, can, can fix and stabilize truth. People don't want truth to be fixed. And the Bible says it is fixed. And it can be known because it has been written. So, number one, Scripture is the Word of God. Number two, Scripture is sufficient. If we were to flip through church history, what we would find is that the Reformation wasn't an issue of whether or not the Scriptures made mistakes. Right? What was at stake wasn't if the word of God was right. It was, is the word of God authoritative by itself? Catholic Church had their tradition, which was on par with Scripture. And what the Reformers fought to say was that Scripture is the unique, the supreme, the chief authority over every other source of authority. Not scripture and other things, not scripture and our experience, but scripture alone. And that informs other things and it informs our experience. Scripture is the word of God. Scripture is sufficient. And third, scripture is without error. Verse 21, scripture did not come from the will of man. It came from God. If it came from God, then it must all be true. Romans 3, 4 says he can't lie. And so even the difficult parts that you read it and you say, wait a minute, does that really, is this, do I really have to do this? Is this really what I believe? Did someone get it wrong along the way? J.I. Packer, 15 years ago, said certain people get scared with the word inerrancy as if somehow the Bible doesn't fit the facts. But when you deny inerrancy, the Bible being without error, that either means that scripture is not all from God or God is not all dependable. And so this reminder from Peter just reminds us, scripture is the word of God. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is without error. Why is there something even more sure than eyewitness account? Because the Holy Spirit, but because through the Holy Spirit, God wrote a book. He wrote a book. We all want to hear directly from God, and we think that maybe if we can hear something audibly, that will be more official than receiving something that's been written. We think that for some reason about God, and yet we don't act that way when our boss emails us. We're not waiting on the audible, official. No, no, no. It's the Lord has spoken, and he has spoken in his written word. Friends, God wrote a book. And we can open it up and we can see and find God. Every single page is a revelation of God himself to you. And so are we making time to pay attention to this word? What would that look like in your life? Peter encourages that, that throughout this letter, we are to grow in knowledge. Friends, the Bible is not meant to be approached like a museum where we go and there's some really cool stories on display and we just sort of passively, calmly interact. No, 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 the Bible rather is to be engaged as though it were a mine. And we just take the pickaxe of time and hard work and a lot of help from the Holy Spirit and prayer and we just begin to mine out riches, revealing more and more of who God is. And as we come face to face with who he is, friends, we can't help but change. If you don't understand how to read the Bible, you don't understand how to mine it, let us help you understand it. We'll read it with you. Hopefully our services are just this reminder of continuing to mine out God's word. Come to Covenant Life Institute at nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. Come to community group. Come to our outdoor gatherings. We want to teach you the Bible so that you would pay attention to the Bible. Where else would you go? Friends, where else do you go? No more sure, no more certain word than the scriptures. It will be like a lamp guiding us on a dark path. If you think that your life is seen as someone who's wandering around in the darkness, what are you doing with the lamp that God has provided? Pay attention to the word. Where shall we go to fan into flames the hope that we have? 
Do you need encouragement that the day really is going to dawn? The morning star really is going to rise. Do you need encouragement that the life of self-control and patience and brotherly affection and love really is the road that leads to glory? If so, then go to the scriptures. Go long, go deep. And when you go, remember this, that these are not mere words of men. They are the words of God himself. Men moved along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And when you're there, seek his meaning. Seek his meaning from the lamp, and the lamp will give you light of hope. This is why the Apostle Paul would say, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by the steadfastness and the encouragement of the scriptures, men might have hope. Friends, you want to behold God this side of heaven. There's no need to pray for a vision. There's no need to beg God for an experience. Open the book. Let's pray. What unfathomable grace. Hugh wrote a book that we can know you from. God, I pray that you would lead us in repentance for being a people who approach your word as though it were a museum and not a minefield of riches. And so would you forgive us? There's no need to leave this morning condemned, guilty, shamed because there's forgiveness in the cross. But God, we don't want to leave unchanged. And so in these next few moments, would you just, by your spirit, the same spirit that led these men to speak from God, would your spirit show us how we ought to respond? Help us rightly treasure. Help us to be a church that is mighty in the scriptures. Help us continue to come back to the wellspring that never runs dry. Speak now to us, we pray.